Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. started a series last Sunday called When Jesus is Lord. And if you weren't here with us or you didn't tune into the live stream last Sunday, I want to encourage you to check out the podcast on um, iTunes or wherever you stream podcasts to check out. Uh, we left the, the message up on Facebook. You can go there or YouTube to stream last Sunday's message. It was a really important message just to get us kicked off and in to the message series talking about the Lordship of Jesus. As I prepared through the month of November and December, I felt like I sensed the Holy Spirit speaking this over our community of believers, over our church, that we in the new year were to see what it would be like to live and say that Jesus is Lord, to really live our lives for the lordship, under the lordship of Jesus. What would it look like if a community of people committed themselves wholeheartedly to living as Jesus is Lord? And so we kicked off the series last Sunday as just a general introduction of the lordship of Jesus. So that's why it's really important to have that foundation and moving forward. This morning we're going to be talking about uh, family. Jesus' lordship over our families. And next Sunday we'll be discussing finances. There'll probably be like five people here. (laughs) It'll be good. What does it look like, the stewardship of finances in our lives? It's a very important topic. We'll go on to talk about different topics like uh, community and work. What do our work lives look like when we are submitted under the lordship of Jesus? So this is really on God's heart for our community. And for those of you tuning in online, we're grateful that you're journeying this with us as well. So today's all about family, and I wanted to just start right off the bat by saying and acknowledging that like my family experience is different than yours, and your family experience and your definition of what family is differs from probably the person sitting next to you or down the row or in the back. We all have different definitions of the word family. You know, I talked to a friend this week who I was just you know, picking her brain and saying, hey, help me get some broader perspective because I'm going to be talking about family. And my friend said, yeah, you know, most times, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but most times when preachers or churches talk about family, it's always this quaint little, like, living room sign, you know, that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And those are all well and good, but we have to acknowledge We have to acknowledge that not everyone's family experience is like that. It's not this Rockwellian portrait of Thanksgiving with happy mom and dad and kids surrounded around this gigantic turkey ready to stuff themselves full and just living this happy family life. It's just not like that. Some of you here this morning come from broken homes where dad walked out. Others came from homes where mom was addicted to substance. Others are desolated by divorce, fractured, fractured by separation. 
Maybe your experience growing up with family was just an utter mess. You uh, suffered physical, emotional, or sexual abuse growing up. Family is a tricky thing to talk about in church. And it's, it's crazy that it's like that because as we'll find later that Paul describes the church as family. And yet, oftentimes, it's our deepest place of wounding. And so the message here today, if you get one thing, is that whether your home is broken, put together, divorced, separated, suffering abuse, that Jesus can come and Jesus can make whole a broken home, a broken past. The good news today, the good news today is that God is... uh, willing and ready to even enter into your past and heal those wounds and then set you in a new family. His family. And so that's the good news this morning. That he's come to make us whole. I talked to others this week who said their experience with family is that of being unequally yoked. Their husband is not a believer. And so at mealtimes, it's been, it's been tough. She, over the years, she has to pray silently. What does it look like to say Jesus is Lord in a home like that? It was encouraging, though. My friend shared that uh, recently her, her son and his wife have moved back uh, into, into the house as they prepare to form their own family and their own house. And she said they're believers too. And so now at mealtimes they get to pray out loud because uh, they outnumber the unbeliever. And that encouraged me, you know. They're living, they're getting to live Jesus as Lord in a tough situation. Family can be a tough situation tough situation. I talked to another friend and, and he gave me this description of what it looks like for them to live as Jesus is Lord. He said this, for us a home where Jesus is Lord has a growing presence of the fruit of the Spirit, not always displayed perfectly. Real life happens and is honestly processed through the grid provided by Scripture. Responding to each other in humility and love is fundamental to a growing relationship with each other and with God. This is the ideal. This is where we're headed. A growing relationship with each other and with God. Not one that's estranged from one another. Not one that's estranged from God. But that's growing. I talked to another friend who um, has experienced deep loss in her life. Deep, deep loss in her life. I know others of you who have experienced deep trauma through loss. Maybe it's the loss of a, of a spouse or a parent or even a child. How do you go on living as Jesus is Lord through seasons of loss and lack? And this whole jumble, you know, talking to a friend even this morning about the jumble, the confusion of living uh, simultaneously with the, the, the feeling of loss and joy. 
having just lost a, a parent, what does that look like to grieve and to say, Jesus, you are Lord. I don't know where else to go. Where do I go? But you, you have the words of life, Jesus. So it's confusing. It's, it's traumatic sometimes. Family's tough. Family is tough. But like we said, your past doesn't have to define your future. Your past doesn't have to be your future. Your dad's sins don't have to be your destiny. Generational garbage doesn't have to be your eternal inheritance. That's the good news. And you know, family mess, it's not a recent phenomenon. It's not an exclusively American thing where our families are just all jacked up and everybody else through history, their families were just fine. No, it's an old thing. It even goes back to the book of Genesis. In Scripture, all through Scripture, we read these these Bible, these historical biblical figures, and we're like, oh my goodness, they're amazing. They're in the Bible. Their families were jacked up. And we're going to see that this morning. Buckle up. going to be fun. You know, even from the first book of the Bible, we read that Abraham, the father of, of the Jewish nation, the patriarch himself, played favorites. Abraham played favorites. The spiritual giant, his favorite son was Isaac. And then that passed on to Isaac himself. Isaac's favorite son was Esau. Meanwhile, his wife Rebekah had a favorite son. That was Jacob. And Jacob had a favorite son. His name was Joseph. And then Joseph later had a favorite son. His name was Benjamin. Ever live in a home where they played favorites? Can anybody relate to that? We see the family mess of constant sibling rivalry in the patriarch's family. Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. The stress of infertility. Sarah couldn't get pregnant. Her daughter-in-law, Rebecca, couldn't get pregnant. Daughter-in-law, Rachel, couldn't get pregnant. And each of them had various schemes to try and get pregnant. We see a pattern of lying in the Bible throughout every generation. Abraham lied twice about Sarah. Isaac and Rebekah's marriage was characterized by lies. Jacob lied to almost everyone all the time. In fact, his name means deceiver. Jacob's sons lied about Joseph's death. They faked a family funeral and kept family secrets for decades. Anybody relate with that? And there is this cutting off of family relationship. Not only were there sibling rivalries, but generation after generation, one sibling was cut off from the other. Isaac and Ishmael were cut off from one another for years. Jacob fled from his brother Esau and was cut off from him for decades. Joseph was cut off from his ten brothers for decades. I could go through the same basic story of family mess through the entire Bible, especially in King David's family, which is where Jesus' lineage lies. Family mess is an old thing. It's an old thing. Do you see negative family patterns repeated at all in your family? Someone having an affair 
an estrangement between family members, unhealed relationship, a legacy of repeated divorces, substance abuse, on and on, anger, pregnancies outside marriage, uh, tendency towards anxiety, an inability to say you're sorry, to admit you're wrong. You know, there's this pastor in New York, his name's Pete Scazzaro, and he wrote this wonderful book called um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I can't recommend this book enough. To read Emotionally Healthy Spirituality is like uh, medicine for the soul, for the wounded soul. And he's a pastor in New York, and he offers one reason why there are these legacies in our lives. And what Scazzaro points out is that family rules impact everything in our lives. Everything. He calls them the Ten Commandments actually. They're like the Ten Commandments of family rules. Things like we don't talk about money, or when we're mad, we become passive-aggressive towards one another. Can anybody relate with that growing up? Maybe you grew up in a, in a home that held as the highest ideal something that another family could care less about. And as Tolstoy used to say, each happy family looks alike, but each unhappy family looks different in its own way. Family mess varies from family to family. Your mess is not your neighbor's mess. They grew up with different family rules than you did, but a mess nonetheless. A mess nonetheless. What were the messages that you were brought up with regarding what good parenting looked like? Or what gender roles ought to be like in marriage? What messages were sent on how physical affection ought to be shown? How did your family raise you to think about God, to think about church, or about other churches or other faiths? How did your family raise you to think about which political party was right and which one was wrong? Family patterns, family rules, family messages, family mess impacts everything in our lives. Here's the good news. That family mess is overcome every day in Christian experience. That's where we see victory from our past, from these deep wounds that we've encountered. And that's where we find freedom from some of the stuff that we encounter today in our lives today. It's not just all in the past, it's present This is how we grow. Family messes overcome every day in Christian experience. We don't just move on. And so today we're going to be in Genesis 42, and we're going to read the story of Joseph. So if you had your Bible and you wanted to turn uh, there with me or flip there on your phone, we want to encourage you to do that. And I set the context a little bit for Joseph's family lineage. And now we're going to take a deep dive into his experience. We're going to start by reading chapter 42 in Genesis, verses 1 through 13. We read this. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued. I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother. 
with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons, who were among those who went to buy grain, for, those, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they, they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. One is no more. Now, if you remember the story of Joseph, his father favored him, as we said before, and gave him what scripture or what we in the West call a coat of many colors. Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. And then the brothers, in a fit of jealousy and rage, sell their brother into slavery. They sell him into slavery, they leave him for dead. And Joseph is sold as a slave and brought to Egypt. But Joseph's life, we see here in the narrative, turns around quickly. Through submitting to God and through some hard work, Joseph rises. He rises in society. And he's put in control of the, of the, of the grain stores to give out to protect people who are suffering through a famine. Joseph thought to himself, as we read through the narrative, we can imply that Joseph thought to himself, I can just move on. I can move on from my past. I can move on from my family mess. I don't have to deal with it. I don't have to deal with my father or my brothers. I've made a success out of my life. I don't have to think about what was done to me. I'll just move on. In fact, in a chapter before we read this, in Genesis 41, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble in my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Joseph named one of his sons God made me forget. And the other son he named God made me fruitful. I don't have to deal with my past. I don't have to go back to Canaan to try to resolve things with my family. All the garbage is buried. I can just forget about it. God has made me fruitful. I can just move on. And sadly, a lot of Christians have been taught bad theology when it comes to dealing with our past. A lot of Christians are taught that when you come to Christ, you're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. It's true. It's true. God starts something new in your life when you come to Christ. He puts his spirit in you. He gives you a new future, a hope, and a purpose. 
But being a new creation doesn't mean you never have to deal with your past. Being a new creation doesn't mean you never have to deal with your past. We are new, but we're not entirely new. We're still impacted by our past in millions of different little tiny ways. And so was Joseph. And Joseph thinks, I'm just going to move on. And a lot of followers of Jesus think this way. I'm just going to move on. I've moved far away enough from my hometown and my family. I've got a new life. But then Joseph's brothers show up. Joseph's brothers show up. Has this ever happened to you? You're going through life. You feel like, hey, I'm thriving. I'm in, a, I'm in a pretty good spot in life. You know, work's good. My current family's good. Everything's good. I'm rising. It's, I'm thriving. And then, bam, that brother you're estranged with says, hey, I'm moving back to Cleveland. Can I live with you for a couple of months? Haven't seen your ex-wife in 15 years. She comes back and she says, hey, I really need some resolution in my life. Can we sit down and talk about this? Maybe you're going through life, going through your daily routine, and, and your son who had walked away from the faith 30 years ago, haven't seen him in 30 years, suddenly comes back to Cleveland. Says, mom, I'm back. You know, we all have similar experiences to Joseph. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, we read in verse 7 that he saw his brothers and he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and he spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Why does God suddenly allow things from our past to be stirred up in our lives in the present? Why does he do that? Why does he allow for things to happen like that? Maybe it's not another person that's suddenly thrust into your life. Maybe it's a reminder of certain behavior. You see something in your child's life that was an issue that you dealt with in the past, an issue that you kept secret, and now you see it playing out in your kids. You kept it buried, so buried that you uh, may have well have named it Manasseh. God made me forget. Why does God allow things to suddenly erupt in our lives? Because the truth is that we can't just move on. We can't. No matter how hard we want to try, we can't just move on. And there's an old adage, and you're probably familiar with this one, that says that hurt people hurt people. And on and on and on it goes. Hurt people hurt people. Joseph's past wasn't healed. We know this from the narrative. Just below the surface, when his brothers show up, so does all of his old anger. He speaks harshly with them. Have you seen this in yourself or maybe someone else? Just me? I've only seen this in my life. You guys wouldn't struggle with this, would you? No, you wouldn't. I know you. You guys are wonderful. 
You've never seen this in yourself or someone else, an overreaction to something small that's said or done. Have you ever been with someone who's triggered by an innocent comment that you made? It wasn't quite right, but it was a small thing, but it created this huge explosion. Do you know anyone who, because of their prior woundedness, continually acts out of their woundedness, interpreting every gesture, every word, through the prism of their own pain. Hurt people hurt people. We can't just move on. The good news is that God doesn't just want your whole heart. God wants your heart whole. And that's what we're talking about when Jesus is Lord. God doesn't just want your whole heart. God wants your heart made whole. Later on in Genesis 45, we read this. 45 uh, verses 1 through 7. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. He cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there is no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard all about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. All of this emotional turmoil is just below the surface. All this pain and grief that was buried, it suddenly comes up. How do we overcome family mess? The answer is, the solution is that we don't just move on, but we allow God into our past. We allow God. We acknowledge it. We don't just move on. We say, it's there. I'm aware of it. And then we allow God into that space. To be Lord. We bring our emotions, our thoughts, our patterns, our messes to God. And we tell him, we tell God what was done to us. What our family was like. What we experienced. We invite him into the mess instead of trying to keep him out or trying to deal with it ourselves. We allow God into our past. In Genesis 45, 5, in the story of Joseph, we read this, And now do not be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And in verse 7, God sent me ahead of you to preserve uh, for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. You intended to hurt me, but God had a different purpose. How do we overcome family mess? First, we don't move on. Second, we allow God into our past. By the way, you don't need to be on your own when you do that. And I would highly recommend you don't do that alone. 
Allowing God into our past is something that we do in spiritual companionship with someone we feel safe with, with someone who we're able to be vulnerable with. And we have a couple of resources that I wanted to tell you about. If this message is hitting you in a certain way and you have some family mess, which is all of us, and you're ready to allow God into your past, the first is I've, uh, uh, I'll be the first to say that counseling has helped me immensely. Yes, your pastor goes to counseling, and you should be saying yes and amen that you have a pastor who's willing to be vulnerable with a counselor in a setting like that, because very few are, very few. A growing number, and that's encouraging that more pastors are seeking counseling, but I wanted to recommend one counseling center, and you, you may have, a friend of yours may know um, different counseling centers in the area, but the counseling center that I go to is called Emerge Counseling. It's called Emerge Counseling, and it's in Akron, and they work with all kinds of different insurance companies, and it's relatively inexpensive. It's Christian-based, and it's led by some amazing, amazing people. And Sarah and I have just found... Uh, emerge to be a safe place where we can unpack and process some of the things that have happened and allow God into our past. So emerge counseling in Akron. Another thing is just to seek out a spiritual director. Spiritual direction is spiritual companionship, someone to process and to journey and walk along beside life with. I see a spiritual director once a month, and it's through the School of Sustainable Faith, through the Vineyard Movement. If you want any information on spiritual direction, come and ask me questions. Hey, what's that all about? We've got several people in the congregation who are spiritual directors or who are going to be spiritual directors here in the near future, May, actually. So many folks who are um, entering this process of spiritual direction And then the third is addiction-specific. And we don't offer any um, Celebrate Recovery right now here at the church, but there is a church really close by to here called Refuge Church who offers Celebrate Recovery. And Tammy Dieslow, who is on staff here as children's pastor, she's a leader here, um, is friends with the folks over at Refuge Church on Broadview Road. And they offer Celebrate Recovery classes every week where you can journey healing, not only allowing God into your past, but how to get free from addiction. So there's all kinds of resources, helping resources for this issue of family mess and how it impacts our lives today. You intended to hurt me, but God had a different purpose. And I love how Joseph's story ends like that. God, he, he doesn't just want our whole heart. He wants our hearts to be whole. And here's the third thing. We step into adoption or we get, to, to say to get a new family seems kind of weird. Because some of our family experiences are good, right? It's not all super broken and super messy. Some of it is really good. So to say to get a new family, but this is the reality of what's going on as Julie shared with us this morning at the, at the, at the cross. At the cross is where we're adopted. And we're told that a Christian is different. I love it. I love family. You know, a lot of churches would usher out kids because they're being too noisy or too annoying. We're talking about family today. I love it. There's signs of life at Vineyard Cleveland happening. It's not an annoyance, it's praise. Yeah. 
<laughs> as he's upside down by his feet. I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, but uh, getting a new family. <laughs> you say, my family's all messed up. God says, together we're going to deal with that, all the pain and craziness of your family, but I've got something good in store for you. You can have a new family. You can have a new family. A Christian is someone who says that God is my father. I was just joking about this with a friend over text this morning. You know, it's such a cliche thing in people's prayers, and they go on and on, Father, 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 Father. We're like, I wonder how many times we can say it, how many times Father, or like just, Lord, just do this. Come, just, Holy Spirit, just show up. You know, there's all these things that we pray. But it's true. Do you know Jesus in the Gospels referred to God as Father over 175 times? It's unique to Jesus' experience and our experiences as followers of Jesus that we relate to God as Father, that we call him Father, is really a special thing. It shows that we've been adopted and it happens at the cross. He's the first religious teacher in all of history who taught his followers to relate to God as Father. In John 1, 12, yet all who did receive him to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In Galatians, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. The way we become sons and daughters of God and have God as our father is by choosing to trust in his eternal son, Jesus Christ, the lordship of Jesus. It's such a privilege to be called a son or a daughter, and we're all at different junctions and figuring out what that looks like or how to live that out, that life of sonship or daughtership. We're all at different points, but it's such a privilege to be called a son or a daughter of Christ, of God. You know, Mike Pivolacci spoke at... um, the Naturally Supernatural Conference a couple years ago in the UK. Mike Pivolacci is a, a well-known pastor, speaker. And he's, he got all fired up during this talk and he said, church isn't a flipping business. You, you don't fire sons and daughters. Church is a family. And I second that sentiment. Pivolacci's right. The Apostle Paul is right. The church is a family. We have God as our Father and the church as our brothers and sisters. Church isn't just the place we go, a building we show up at on Sundays. Church, most often in the New Testament, is referred to as a family. It's the new family with God as our Father that we can find healing from family mess. You know, we'll celebrate on Monday. Tomorrow, we'll celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day, federal holiday. You guys will all have the day off. You know, this past summer on the way to our vacation, um, Sarah and I stopped at uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s church in Birmingham, Alabama, and 16th Street Baptist Church, where, which was firebombed in the 60s. And I think we've got some photos of, there, there I am at Martin Luther King Jr.'s church in Montgomery. And it's just a tiny little brick church that sits on the corner of, of this modern southern city. And I thought to myself as I walked past the door, 
the words of King ringing in my ears as he calls the church the beloved community. You know, there are lots of helping organizations out there who do a lot of great things, and we love partnering with those places, but there is no place like the church that can be called the beloved community, as King put it. His ideal, the thing that he was shooting towards, was this thing of family, that the church would be known in Montgomery, the small little place. Can you imagine inside? It, it, it's smaller than this church building. It would probably seat 25, 40 people. And every Sunday morning, you can just see King walking from the parsonage a couple blocks away into the back door, stepping into a pulpit like this and sharing with family the good news and the impact that a family can have on a city on the nation, and on the world, from a community of the beloved community of 25 to 40 people in Montgomery, Alabama, shook up the world and fought for justice and human rights and the dignity of men and women, the image of God in our brothers and sisters, the power that a beloved community can have in their city, in this dark world, when they say Jesus is Lord, that little church in Montgomery, Alabama, truthfully could be any church. When that community sees themselves as family and Jesus as Lord. Because when we see Jesus as Lord, it implies obedience and saying yes on our part. And that's a tricky, that's a tricky one. We have a friend, her name is Rebecca, and I wanted to share her story with you. She was so kind as to record it. Uh, We're going to play this video. I want you to listen to Rebecca's story about saying yes to God as it relates very tangibly to real life family. But when we think about the church and saying yes to Jesus, when we say, Jesus, you are Lord and I am not, the impact that it can have on our world in bringing the kingdom forward. Check out this video. It's about 10 minutes long. We'll watch this video and then we'll close up. My name is Rebecca Kearney. I'm one of the pastors at Christ the King Vineyard just down the street. Um, Evan and Sarah had asked me to share with you guys a little bit of our yes story as a family. Husband Stephen and I have been married for 16 years. When we were engaged, I told Jesus that if he really loved me, he would give me four daughters. And I know that sounds ridiculous because it is, but I've always been very much the girl mom. Like I love strong women. I was raised by a strong woman. I have um, sisters I'm really close to and that little sisterhood's really sweet. Um, And it was just like this kind of joke, right? It wasn't something I was earnestly praying for, but like I would just joke around, well, you know, if Jesus really loves me, ha ha ha. It was kind of my plan for my life. We got married and um, a month after we got married, we moved to India to do uh, mission work with Youth of the Mission. We got pregnant while we were over there. I ended up having one of our daughters. Um, Our oldest was there for her first two and a half years. And it was this great, big Jesus adventure. Jesus met us over and over and over again. It was like this wonderful, 
wonderful Jesus story the whole time. After three years, we felt like we needed to move back, finish our degrees. My husband ended up getting a teaching job here in Lakewood, and I ended up um, working for Christ the King. And we had three more daughters. So we had this family of four daughters. It, it was beautiful. It felt complete. We decided we were done having kids, and we would always laugh that Jesus was listening, you know, to my silly little prayer. One of the things about Christ the King Vineyard is we have a daycare in the building. One of the features of it is that it's very special needs friendly. And so I remember in staff meeting, um, probably I guess now this is three years ago, four years ago, they um, said that there was a family coming in, a little boy, uh, it's a single mom situation and um, the boy was nonverbal and he had some special needs and his name was Andrew. I would see him in the hall and he was so sweet and he'd always run and give me a hug and I'd high five. I met the mom a few times and she was like the most cheerful person I had ever met in my whole life. Um, one day from a distance I saw her crying and I felt this like inclination in my spirit, like an urgency that I needed to buy her flowers, which is like crazy. I didn't know this woman well at all, but I just felt like this is what Jesus was saying to me. Next morning, I woke up early. I went to the grocery store. I bought a big bouquet of flowers and a card. I'm like, this lady's gonna think I'm crazy, but I don't care, I'm saying yes. So in the card, I said, hey, I just wanna let you know you're a great mom and you're doing a great job. And being a single mom is tough. Being a mom of a special needs kiddo is tough. If you ever need anything, day or night, here's my cell phone number. So I put it in the card, I put it with his stuff, um, and I didn't think anything of it. On and off in the hallway, we'd say hello, or send me a couple sweet texts, but that was all. Six months later, I hadn't talked to this woman in all this time. I get a text. She said, hey, I'm in terrible pain and I need to go to the hospital and I don't know where uh, I can put my son because of his profound special needs, because of the fact that he's nonverbal, all this stuff. I, I just don't, he doesn't, we don't have any friends. None of our family lives in town. Would you or someone you trust be able to watch him just for a day? And so, you know, my husband is a teacher. This is during the summer, right? So he's home. And I was working from home because of the pandemic. So I was like, absolutely, we're your people. I meet them in the parking lot of a Baskin Robbins in North Olmsted on June 30th. And it was the most surreal thing ever. I pull up, her car pulls up, and it's loaded full of his stuff. Like, that's kind of weird. And I'm just babysitting him for a day, but all right, Jesus, right? Like, we just say yes. We say yes to the thing that's put in front of us. We say yes to widows and orphans, so, so okay. So I unload all the stuff from her car, including like groceries for him and um, like a bunch of his toys and then bedding, bedding for a day, okay. So as I'm loading it all in my car, she said, you know, they might keep me overnight. And I said, that's fine, that's fine. We quickly stayed by in the parking lot. He had never been away from her before. He had never not slept in her bed before. But we're just kind of doing this adventure with Jesus. So uh, so she leaves. I get ice cream for him and for my kids. And, and he can't really talk to me, but he's happy and cheerful. And um, so I take him back to our house and everything's going well. That night, I'm like, you know, on edge. Is he gonna wander the house? And what's gonna, you know, what what is this gonna look like? 
I, I didn't realize I didn't know his last name. I, I didn't know much about him because it was just supposed to be an afternoon. So uh, the next day I get a text from her saying um, they are they need to keep me longer. So I said, that's fine. He's wonderful. We're having a great time with him. He's very sweet. He actually slept great, although I didn't. And then the next day I get a message from her saying they need to do an emergency surgery. And I said, okay, th that's totally fine. Because we're just saying yes, one night at a time, right? So that's fine. But I'm, I'm going to need like maybe a phone number of somebody in case there's an emergency that I can get a hold of. And that kind of took a while to get it from her. Uh, but, uh, but I did. And, and so then she has surgery. And then I don't hear from her for a few days. Kind of back and forth. She's, she starts texting me and I, we're going back and forth. And she said, um, they're, they're probably going to keep her for a week. Then, then they're going to keep her for a couple weeks. Then... I finally get a hold of the hospital because at this point, I'm not sure what's going on. She didn't tell me what she's sick with. And I speak to the social worker who says, this is the worst of stage four cancer. She has a 20% chance of survival. Our minds are blown. We don't know this kid's last name. We don't know how old he is but he's with us and his mom is in this terrible position. So I called the emergency number I was given. It's his grandmother who's wonderful but can't take him because she's so elderly and she lives out of state. Now we're at a month. We've had this boy for a month. We find out his birthday is the next week. We throw him a birthday party. Then, then we realize that we have to get him into school somewhere because this term is starting. So, so we get him into school. And then it's looking like she's gonna get better and then maybe he's gonna go back to her. And then we find out that hospice has been called in. And so this whole time, our hearts aren't sure what to do. We put him in speech therapy and find out that he isn't nonverbal that he just has childhood apraxia of speech and with therapy he can get better. So we get him enrolled in speech therapy four times a week. Meanwhile, this isn't our son, this isn't our child, but we're falling in love with him and we don't know what to do with our hearts. But we really felt like the Lord spoke to us and said that every child, every person, deserves to have someone willing to break their hearts over them. And so we just said yes to Jesus with our whole hearts. And we, we talked to our kids and we said, hey, there's a possibility that Andrew might be staying. And our kids were like, okay, yeah, no, good. I'm like, I mean, if his mom passes, his family can't take it, we would adopt. And they said, yeah, good. And I was expecting it to be this long, hard conversation, but our kids were just like, yeah. Like, yes and amen, wholeheartedly, all four of them. But it was hard because every day we weren't sure if we were keeping, if we weren't keeping him. And then, and then she passed. And it, it, she hadn't seen him uh, for seven months at that time. And so we got all the legal mechanisms in place and, uh, and we adopted him in March of 2021 and he's our son he's thriving he came to us saying four words and now he speaks fluently but kind of one of the things that we held on to this whole time was if we had ever had a son for each of our daughters 
we had had only one name, and that name was Andrew. And every time I got pregnant with our girls, I'd put my hand on my belly and I would say, are you Andrew? Are you Andrew? And friends, this little guy came with the name Andrew because Jesus had him prepared for our family. He was loved and nurtured by his birth mama for five months. And Jesus saw the smooth transition into our family when we weren't expecting it, when we weren't seeking it, but when we were just willing to say yes to one day. And that has been the blessing of Andrew in our life. Thanks for letting me share with you guys. Have a great Sunday. You know, when we say that, Jesus, you are Lord, and we give him our yes, lives are transformed. When we decide to commit to not just moving on, but seeing our past and allowing God into our past as as these things that God wants to turn from garbage into gold. We begin to find that Saying yes to Jesus doesn't get any easier. Saying yes to Jesus doesn't get easier as you get older. Saying saying yes to Jesus doesn't get easier uh, as you become wiser. Saying yes to Jesus is really tough. But what I love about Rebecca's story is that we have a father who saw Andrew and gave Rebecca and Stephen the courage and grace to give him their yes. And I just wonder this morning how many of us, as we move into ministry time, God would want to move in our hearts, and in our lives today, this could be a moment where you give your yes to God.